the thing that worked amazingly well was they had two Russian American soldiers dressed up in Russian Red Army uniforms, and they would say, oh, you don't want to talk to us? How about if we have Ivan here take you to the Soviet Union? Maybe they would like to hear what you have to say. We're back with Robert K. Sutton. We're talking about his recent book, which is called Nazis on the Potomac. It is published by Casemates. It's about Nazis on the Potomac. So Robert K. Sutton, tell us about the forgotten football game. (laughs) This is actually a funny story. You know, the Washington Redskins, now they're called the Commanders. At the time, they were called the Washington Redskins. And on December 7th, 1941, they were playing the Philadelphia Eagles at Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C. The game was actually started at 2 o'clock. A few minutes before 2 o'clock, as you probably all know, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. People in the stands had no idea that anything had happened. They watched the entire football game. The Redskins won the game. The Eagles were horrible that year. The Redskins were okay. They weren't fantastic, but they had a really good quarterback, Sammy Baugh. And they won the game. They did very well that year. But nobody in the stadium knew that, except the loudspeaker would say, would General so-and-so come to the wherever they came to? And would General so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? All through the game, they kept calling people to come. <laughs> but... 50 years later, there was a really wonderful sports writer who wrote an article said the most forgotten game ever played, and that was that game. Wow. Can you imagine being in a stadium and every once in a while, would anybody with uh, anti-terrorism expertise please report to the front desk? (laughs) (laughs) You're right. (laughs) You sort of get us into the world of World War II with that funny story. The main narrative of the book is not about football. It's about a group of, I guess you would call them Jewish refugees from Germany who were word-perfect native German speakers who were living in the U.S., some of them were naturalized in the U.S., and ended up running a counterintelligence unit on the Potomac where captured Nazis would go to be interrogated. This was a secret until very recently. When was this declassified, and how did you even find out about this story? All the people who were involved in this were sworn to secrecy, and they understood that they probably would take this story with them to the grave. Most of them did. But starting in the 1970s and then by the mid-90s, virtually everything from World War II had been declassified, including all of the transcripts from this location. It was at a fort. If anybody knows about Washington, D.C., it's between Alexandria and Mount Vernon. Fort was called Fort Hunt. It actually was built around 1900, had several different uses, but it became this site for several different programs, high level, very secret programs during World War II. And actually the name no longer during World War II was Fort Hunt, it was called Post Office Box 1142. So what happened was the army really, at the beginning of World War II, they realized that their intelligence gathering apparatus was really pretty limited. Actually, even before the war, they had sent him over to UK to try to learn what they were doing, what was successful, what was not successful. They came back and had all kinds of recommendations. And one of them was to set up an interrogation center for high value Nazis. There was another one on the West Coast for Japanese. So they set this location up. There were actually three different programs that were managed at Box 1142. One was, as you said, 
interrogating very high-level Nazis. That program is called MIS, Military Intelligence Section-Y. <laughs> so part of it was interrogating prisoners. The other part of it was that they had listening devices all around the fort. And they tried to pick up conversations from these folks all around the fort. And so that was the second part of M-I-S-Y. So there would be like 12 soldiers that would listen in on conversations, not around the clock, but most of the time when people were up. And then the interrogation sections. That was one. That was one of the most fascinating parts of the book. These people were all adamant in the interviews that this wasn't a torture. They didn't beat anyone up. They didn't coerce anyone. What they would do is interview them and then let them go. And the prisoners just didn't know that the interview hadn't ended. They were still being recorded. They were still being listened to. So they would get a bunch of information from them. And then these guys would go back to their cell and say to their buddies, like, oh, I just told them all this bullshit. <laughs> right. I told them that the U-boats were over here when we really know that they're actually over here. And then that is the information that would be actionable. Part of the success of this eavesdropping program was most of the early prisoners that came through Fort Hunt were from U-boats, U-boat prisoners, captured U-boats. Many of the sailors, fair number, really thought what was going on in Germany was horrible. They didn't want anything to do with it. And so they volunteered to be stool pigeons. And so what they would do is they would bunk with these German prisoners. And they were the ones who could really get this good information out. Did you tell them that so-and-so and so-and-so? No, no, I said, as you said, something else. And then so the next day they might interrogate them a little bit more, get a little bit more information from them. That part of it worked actually very well. And then, as you said, they never tortured the prisoners. Before World War II, the Army got a cooperative agreement to use it during World War II and for a year after World War II. And after the war, it became a park again. It's now a very popular picnic and recreation area. And the park staff there didn't know much about what happened during World War II because of the secrecy. So. One day, someone was giving a tour of the fort, and they said, you know, we're beginning to learn about what happened here. As things were declassified, they were learning sort of the programs that happened there. We'd really like to find somebody who was stationed here. And one woman piped up and said, you know, my former neighbor was here during World War II, and he'd probably be happy to talk to you. So park staff contacted this fellow. His name was Fred Michelle. He had moved from Alexandria to Kentucky. They tried to set up an interview with him. He was kind of cagey about it because he was afraid that he was spilling the beans if he said anything about it since he'd been sworn to secrecy. Finally, the ranger was able to set up an interview with him. <laughs> he took along a couple of the transcripts from some of his interviews with his name on them and said, see, you can tell the story now. So he opened up. He started telling about some of the people he knew. And by the time we were finished, we did about 65 interviews of soldiers who were still alive who were at Fort Hunt. And that is really the basis of this book. And that's where most of the information that is in the book came from. As I was writing the book, I tried to find as many of these folks who had been interviewed as I could. Most of the interviews took place between 2006 and 2010. And I tried to locate as many as I could. And there are about four or five that are still alive and they're still pretty sharp. They, in fact, some of them were enormously helpful for my book. So that was great. Some of them I would have liked to have gone back and said, well, you know, you said this. I would like a little bit more information on that. And I couldn't because they were gone. But the information we had actually was very good. The people who did the interviews were outstanding. 
So what we have is great. One of the things that just resonated with me in your book was the first Nazi that they interrogate, I think was just a U-boat ensign or a driver or some sort of low-level U-boat person. And he said that he had no particular ideological sympathy with Hitler or with the Nazis, but he needed a job and this was a good job. This is where they lived. This is what was happening. And they got just kind of sucked into it. One thing you'd mentioned earlier, and I think it's worth following up on, was no corporal punishment at all. They wanted to make it very clear when we were doing our interviews, it was sort of period in the Iraq war where the whole thing about Abu Ghraib came out and they wanted to make it very clear that that was not what they did. But they had a couple of things they could do and they did do to get information. One was the Fort Hunt, there's these gun batteries, huge concrete gun batteries that were still there. They're going to be there forever. They would lock them in there for a day. They were cold and damp and they didn't know what was going to happen. And sometimes that would work and they'd start talking. But if that didn't work, the thing that worked amazingly well was they had two Russian-American soldiers dressed up in Russian Red Army uniforms, and they would say, oh, you don't want to talk to us? How about if we have Ivan here take you to the Soviet Union? Maybe they would like to hear what you have to say. <laughs> and that worked amazingly well. And if it didn't, they would just send him to a POW camp, and that was the end of it. But that was their best method for trying to get recalcitrant Nazis to spill the beans. I loved that detail and the other detail that, and they learned this from the British, that they would just go in with the insignia of whatever the person they were interviewing was. So they would find out, oh, this person's a captain. So they would just put on a captain's jacket because they found that prisoners were more likely to talk. <laughs> agree? Yeah, well, so this at this and the, the bit with the Russians, which I should just point out to the audience, that these were not actual Russian soldiers. These were just guys who spoke Russian. They were Russian, but they were Russian-American. Yes, they weren't going to take anyone to the Soviet Union. To me, this is the power of theater. Exactly. You know, this was essentially just a theater production to extract information, and it worked beautifully, probably worked better than torture. I guess locking someone in a gun battery overnight is torture. You know what? The evidence is very, very strong that torture just does not work very well, because at some point people are going to try to decide what their captive wants to hear, whether it's the truth or not. It just does not work. It doesn't. This worked much better. Yeah. I mean, I sometimes wake up in the middle of the night because my three-year-old is screaming. And if what he needs to do is walk through the house and make sure there's no monsters, that's what we're going to do. Right. <laughs> now, that is not my tacit admission that monsters exist and may be in our house. I just want him to go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> Another program that was at the fort was MIRS, which was Military Intelligence Research Section. And what these guys did was they translated and evaluated captured German documents. Now, the Germans were fastidious record keepers. I mean, they kept records on absolutely everything, which was good for them, but it was probably even better for the Allies because they learned how to analyze these records and how to use them for a good purpose. The biggest report that they would do, they did three or four volumes of it. It's called the Red Book because it had a red cover. How about that? It was the Order of Battle of the German Army. And what that sounds like is it's like a history of battles that the German Army fought. Well, it had nothing to do with that. What instead it was, was it analyzed every single unit in the German Army down to the division level. They would say what this division was, where it was, who the commander was, where they had been, where they were, as far as they knew. 
there's a fairly lengthy section on the SS. They were learning more and more about that. So the volume that was published in 1944 turned out to be enormously valuable for the attack on Normandy because they knew all the German divisions that were there or nearby. They knew what their strengths were. And this was tremendously valuable, but it was something that was produced at Fort Hunt. The other thing that they found was that soldiers and sailors, the Germans actually had official brothels. <laughs> and because of that, since it was official, each soldier who used this, I guess what you'd call it a benefit, uh, I don't think like that, but I guess you could call it that. They had to keep a card where they had been and who they had been with, and they had to keep it with them. And of course, the reason for this was, you know, if there was a BD broke out, they wanted to know where it came from. And that was, you know, the main purpose for that. But what turned out, it was a very, very valuable tool for interrogating prisoners because, let's say, Heinz was married and he had several different things on his card that said he'd been to several different places. You think his wife wanted to know where he had been? Or do you think he wanted his wife to know where he'd been? Or didn't want their mother to know what happened? Or in some cases, maybe they were religious and it was a weakness, a brief weakness, and you know they went there. So it had a tremendous benefit for interrogating prisoners because some of them felt really guilty and because of that, they would start talking. But they found out another tool was that some Germans realized if they know that much, they probably know everything. So I might as well just tell them everything I know. <laughs> In my own book, there's sections about Turing. And so I'm looking at this war from that perspective and the Enigma machine, all the stuff that they were doing to crack that code. And the thing that really helped crack the Enigma code was the formula of German communications. They would always end with the weather. And so you knew in every message that there was a certain section that said weather report for tonight. And then there was also a part that always said Heil Hitler. So you had 10 words that you knew what they were that could help you crack the cipher. They were so fastidious, it became their undoing. I want to ask you about what the fort was used for after the war. And if you could just tell us a little bit about Operation Paperclip. Sure. After the war, the army stayed there. As the agreement with the Park Service said, they could stay there for a year after. And they actually stayed even longer than that. One thing I wanted to say that I don't think we really cover very much, most of the soldiers who were stationed at Fort Hunt were German or Austrian Jews. And what had happened was they came to the United States, mostly as young people in the 1930s, either alone or with their families. And I have a whole chapter on how they came to the United States. Early on, some of them wanted to join like the day after Pearl Harbor, but they couldn't because they were classified as enemy aliens because they were German citizens, right? Eventually, they were able to join because the Germans had made a declaration that Jews were no longer citizens. So now they were people without a country, so they could join. And commanders would hear their accent, and they'd say, are you German? Are you Austrian? Yes. Well, we're going to transfer you. And they transferred him to a place called Camp Ritchie, which is in Maryland, actually near present-day Camp David, presidential retreat where they were trained for intelligence, for army intelligence. Most of them were sent to Europe, but many of them came to Fort Hunt. 
And so they became perfect for these programs because German was their primary language. They understood the language. They understood the nuances of the language. They could communicate. One of the people I talked to said he immediately had a rapport with most of the Germans because he loved soccer and the Germans loved soccer. And most Americans didn't even know what soccer was. So he had an instant rapport with these folks because he knew soccer. Anyway, so that became one of the really brilliant things about this program was that they recruited all these Germans to be part of this program. But after the war, toward the end of the war and after the war, there was a new program called Operation Paperclip. My understanding is the reason that it had that name was as they were looking at former Germans and looking at what they were doing and what they had done, it looked like they might be able to do something to help the United States in what was shaping up as a potential Cold War. They would put a paperclip on their file. That's what I understand where that term came from. But this would be scientists, they would be engineers. And so the whole operation at Fort Hunt changed because now they were trying to encourage the Germans to stay here. And so some of the young American soldiers who were now at Fort Hunt and elsewhere were called morale officers. And their job was to try to keep these folks happy. We can take you to brothels and you don't even have to punch a card. And they did. One of them actually did. One of them took a general to a D.C. brothel. And while he was waiting for this general to do what he was doing, the police raided the place. Can you imagine this poor young guy's panic? You know, here he is with a German general and the place is busted by the D.C. police. But they realized that there were a lot of senators and diplomats. And they knew that if they made a big deal out of it, the policemen would probably be in trouble. So they just threw their hands up and said, forget it and walked out. That was part of the program. They tried to do everything to keep them happy, and it worked fairly well. I got some really funny stories from these folks. One of them, who's still alive, he taught at Princeton. He told me that the soldiers, the Germans, were concerned about their families in Germany. Around Christmas, they wanted to send some things to them, food and different things. So he took them to, I believe it was called Landsberg Brothers Department Store, which was a Jewish department store in D.C., and they bought all this stuff. Then they decided they wanted to buy some warm clothing for their wives. Well, of course, they dealt with the metric system and the store was in inches. So they had to take their slide rules out to try to decide, you know, this size really is this, whatever. Well, they were dressed in leather coats and Tyrolean hats. They looked like they were SS and they spoke German. So the clerks in the store panicked. They called the military. And the MPs came and tried to arrest everybody. But the fellow who was there from the American side, this morale officer, was able to convince them that everything was fine. No problem. <laughs> but it could have been. So I'm going to ask you the question that we ask everyone to close the podcast. Recommend two books to our audience that you think that they will enjoy or two books that you think everyone should read. I think if they're interested in there are jillions of books on World War II, and many of them are very good. I think one of the really good books is Shearer, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. It's the whole thing about Hitler. It's very good about that side of the war. And I think to understand it, most Americans are not going to know a whole lot about how everything developed. And that's, I think, one of the really good books. I think the very, very best one-volume book on the Civil War is a book by James McPherson, who was a professor at Princeton, good friend. 
and it is called The Battle Cry of Freedom. It is by far the very best, I think, one-volume book on the Civil War and the Civil War era. Wow. That's high praise coming from someone who's written many books about the Civil War and the Civil War era. I forgot to ask you, but I really want an answer to it. So what did the North call the Civil War at the time, and what did the South call the Civil War at the time? <laughs> well, the general name was War Between the States. I believe they call it the War of Southern Secession was what they called it in the North. They never really called it a war. They didn't want to call it a war because they didn't want to elevate it to that level. Grant calls it a rebellion a lot. They call it the rebellion. That was a fairly common term. They did not want to call it a war. The common name in the South was either the war between the states or the war of northern aggression, or to use the correct intonation, the war of northern aggression. <laughs> well, Mr. Sutton, in all your study of the Civil War, I don't know if you've quite mastered the Southern accent. I have not. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> I, I do appreciate the attempt. <laughs> Last question, I have to let you go, but are you at all nervous that we're going to be heading to the heart of the South, Miami, Florida, in a couple of weeks? Should we be worried as a historian of the Civil War? No. You know, I was the superintendent of Manassas Battlefield, which is in Virginia, which before the Park Service took it over, was owned and operated by the Sons of Confederate Veterans. And when they transferred it to the Park Service, they had all kinds of stipulations in the deed. There were a couple of times when I was attacked because they felt like I wasn't balanced enough in the interpretation. So one thing I insisted on doing with all of our interpretation was to say slavery was the cause of the Civil War, period. They don't like that. So I was criticized. A friend of mine who was a superintendent at Gettysburg gave a talk once in which he said, slavery kind of sort of more or less a little bit kind of here and there, whatever, had something to do with the Civil War. I'm exaggerating, but essentially that's what he said. You know, it was very, very guarded. Within a week, there were a thousand letters written to the Secretary of Interior demanding that he be fired for saying that. Oh, my God. So when we talked about the Civil War, we made it very clear, and we were criticized for it, but we stuck to it, that slavery was and is, no question, the cause of the Civil War. I like to look at it like an onion. When you peel an onion, you have different layers. So one layer is economics. One layer is politics. One layer is social issues. You get to the core, and that core is slavery. Wow. Leave it to a historian to answer my very stupid joke with an incredibly serious and profound <laughs> story. So thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you in person in Miami, and I look forward to talking to you again. I'm looking forward to it as well. My guest next week is Ben Matlin. He is a writer, editor, and essayist here in the great city of Los Angeles. And we're going to be reading Care Work by Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samrasinga. The Book Society podcast is produced by me, Lucas Cantor Santiago. It is edited and co-produced by Santiago Ramones, who's an awesome dude, who has a podcast called Bit Depth, which is also really good. Interesting conversations with interesting people. If you like this podcast, it would be really great if you could rate and review it. All you got to do is scroll down on whatever app you're using, tap five stars or however many stars you think. And if you want to write a review, write a review. Algorithm's going to algorithm. If more people like it and more people tap it and more people review it, then more people hear it. If more people hear it, more guests will be on the show and I'll be able to keep delivering the awesome guests that we all love and keep feeding you with a interesting list of books that we might want to read. 
Javier Zamora, Ben Matlin, Jesse Hempel, David Hoffman, Robert Sutton, Mike Imperioli, Jake Ward. These are just a few of the hundreds of authors from around the world gathering together in downtown Miami for the Miami Book Fair in 2022. The nation's largest gathering of writers and readers of all ages. They, along with Patti Smith, Charlene, Hunter Galt, April Ryan, Samantha Cole, Ada Limon, Stacey Schiff, are so looking forward to sharing their work, thoughts, and new ideas with everyone in person and streamed live from the fair. From Sunday, November 13th to Sunday, November 20th, please visit Miami Book Fair for more information. Follow at Miami Book Fair or hashtag Miami Book Fair 2022. They knew that if they made a big deal out of it, the policemen would probably be in trouble. So they just threw their hands up and said, forget it and walked out. Yeah, well, we learned from former Congressman Madison Cawthorn that rule number one is don't talk about the sex parties. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs>